Well, uh, today we pick up in uh, our study of the little epistle of Jude, uh, the book right before uh, Revelation, the second to last book of the Bible, uh, all of that. Jude is the brother of Jesus, and he is uh, an early leader. He becomes an early leader of the church, and he writes this little epistle because he's concerned, as we have already learned, about false teaching creeping into the church. Uh, and he, his major point is contend for the faith once delivered. And that's the, kind of the main thesis of the little book. And um, in the section we're going to begin today, in, beginning in verse 8, uh, Jude moves from uh, the kind of God holds false teachers accountable and will judge them, which we looked at last week, to now talking about the characteristics of their teaching, the characteristics of their temperament, the characteristics of their character. That's redundant, characteristics of their character. But um, he's, he's helping his readers and therefore us today to understand what is the heart of a false teacher. What is the central thing you look for? So I've thought about that a lot. I, I really have. And because verse uh, 8 through 10 is where he is really describing the heart, the, the center of these false teachers. And I want to get it at each point he makes. He actually ends up making four major points. But before we get there, I want to, and I wrote this on the pad. I hope you can see it. I, I assumed I could use it, so I just went right ahead and used it. I just thought maybe I should ask Joel if I could have done that. But anyway, I want to take you back, because this is really important, um, not only in understanding Jude, but as far as I'm concerned, in understanding what's going on today, 2017. Let's go back to Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. And And the reason that is important because of what comes out of that and what the false teacher uh, teachers are really trying to do. God creates, and God creates everything. And as you remember from Genesis 1 and 2, after he creates everything, each time he does something, each day, he says it's good. And um, we talked about that, but perhaps you don't remember the details. But the Hebrew word for good and what was really going on there has two separate meanings, two separate uh, dimensions to it. When God says it's good, it means that it, what he has just done, produces order, as well as produces that which is conducive to life. Both of these things, order and life, that which is conducive to life, are core values of God, if you want to put it that way, the way we kind of talk today, in business and strategies and things like that. So what's God doing? God, instead of creating a world where there's chaos and dysfunction, God is creating a world where there's order. And now, if you just, you, you think about that for about a minute, you start to see, now I understand one of the strategies of Satan. Because at the heart of Satan's rebellion is to undo this. And Satan is not interested in order. Satan's interested in chaos. Chaos in people's lives, the dysfunction and disorder of families, the dysfunction and disorder of countries. That's what Satan is interested in. And that which is conducive to life. God creates humanity, all life, God creates all forms of life, but he creates humanity in his image. That everything God does in his world before sin and rebellion enters, everything is to be that which is conducive to to life, to support it, so that it can flourish. Another key aspect of what Satan is doing. Satan hates life. Satan hates humans. Satan hates the church. Satan hates every aspect of what God has done, and he's trying to undo it. So the false teacher, regardless of what age you're in, what period you're in, whether you're in A.D. 66 approximately when Jude writes his epistle, or you're in 2017, this still applies. 
Because you, 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 if, if you look at what is going on in our larger world as well as in individual lives and families or communities, both of these things are being attacked. Order and stability is what God desires. And so God has created institutions. He's created the family. He's created the state. He's created the church to help facilitate order and respect and, and, and the value in its innate sense of all life. And most important, human life. So when I understand what God did and how he denominated it as good, and then I understand what Satan is doing and the nature of evil, I understand exactly what's happening. It doesn't take a rocket science scientist to figure this out. Because what sin does is it creates chaos and creates disrespect and devaluing dehumanization of life. And that's exactly what's happening. And so what Jude does, and what I tried to do here, and I I write quickly so I get sloppy, I just hope you can read it. What I've done in those verses, starting verse 8, 9, 10, I've, I've... factored out what I see as four major aspects of what these false teachers are doing. Number one, they're relying, he says, on dreams, on subjective experience. They have to think about that for a minute. And I want to talk about this in, in, in extensive discussion in a minute. But if If you reject the authority of God's word, where will you appeal? To what will you appeal? What will be the basis of your authority? What you've experienced. I had an experience. Therefore, that's the basis of my authority. I'll talk more about that. Defiling the flesh. Now, I won't talk about that, but that... I've to this. God created all this. God created sex. God created man. He created woman. He created all dimensions of the intimacy of that relationship. So if you're going to, you're going to attack as a false teacher that which produces order and that which is conducive to life, you're, you're going to attack and distort and defile what is precious to God. The love and intimacy between a man and a woman. You're going to distort and defile it. And then thirdly, the overarching point, they reject all authority, including even the authority of the spiritual world, which he has a lot to say about that. So I I wanted to introduce all of this this afternoon. We're still morning, I guess. But anyway, by taking you back to the beginning... And then with Genesis 3 on, the rebellion against God, these are the two primary aspects of what God has done in creating the kind of world he created. And with the rebellion against him, these are the things that are constantly being threatened. Order results in chaos. Instead of order being the challenge, uh, being the core, the challenge now is chaos. And that which is conducive to life, no, disrespect. A human being is just something to be used, to be manipulated, whether it's sex or whether it's in work, or you're just, you're just a means to an end. You are of no value except what you do for me. And so that's what, what Jude is doing here is he's trying to say, here is the heart of the temperament and character traits of these false teachers. They are, in effect, attacking and undermining the two core values of our God. All right, now I did, what I did is I did kind of a big overview. So let this sink in for a minute, distill down, and percolate up with some questions. Okay, yes, sir. What's number four? The blaspheme angel. I don't recall you talking about. Uh, well, it, it's related to these two. I'll, I'll I'll talk about that as we get into it. But 
even blaspheming and slandering and showing disrespect for the spiritual world. Okay, so that's what you meant by including the spiritual world. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. Yep, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Now I can sit down. All right, now, I mean, if you don't get all this yet, that's okay. We're going to be looking at it in detail now. But I wanted to start with what did God do? What kind of world did God create? Order. A world of order and, and a world that's conducive to, the, to life. Life is in, innately valuable to God, and human life is infinitely valued to him. Why? Because he creates it in his image. So, and what I'm, you know, I, I, I gave, gave the big macro picture of this, because in Genesis 3, which we studied months and months ago, but in Genesis 3, Satan shows up, and what does he do? Immediately, immediately challenge these two things. Eve, did God say? And he's testing her. Does she really understand what God's done and what he's doing? Huh? He finds out, no, because she makes three mistakes when she answers his question. Now, I'm saying all that because if you, if you understand the world God created, and then you understand what the chief rebel and what the nature of the rebellion against God is, it doesn't take a rocket science, scientist to see what is happening in our world in 2017 or throughout all of human history. I mean, I just look, I, I just one, one little isolated example, as horrible as it is, just Syria. I mean, Syria, I mean, you know, you know, it's complicated, a lot of layers to it. But what do you see there? You see a country that used to exist. The nation state of Syria doesn't exist anymore, really. It's incredibly chaotic and total disrespect for life. Bashar al-Assad has slaughtered 500,000 of his people with chemical uh, gas, with barrel bombs, as well as what Russia has been doing, what Hezbollah has been doing, what Iran has been doing, all those who are supporting him. They've absolutely created, in, in addition, almost 3 million refugees. What do you see there? What does that reflect? Yes, it reflects geopolitical conflict and all that, but men, what it really reflects is rebellion against God and what's important to God. With, like, disorder. Exactly. And, and no value to life. That's exactly right. And I mean, you go back to, you know, although I'm the oldest one in this room, most of us at least know it historically. World War II. World War II was the most monstrously evil war in human history. It set all records for the loss of human life, all records for the destruction of property, all records for the creation of refugees. That is not that long ago. What does it reflect? Chaos and total disrespect for life. And I mean, you can bring it down to just the very personal level. We're experiencing in the United States right now an opioid crisis. And, you know, I'm sure you're reading about it and so on. And it's just, it's an amazing thing because the opioid idea is a basic good idea. It was a good pharmaceutical product. But now what happens? Well, it's abused. People start not taking it for pain, or they take it for pain, they take too much of it for pain, they get addicted to it, and so on. See what's happening? You see, Augustine in the 400s defined evil this way. Evil is a distortion of that which is good. Because what Satan and the rebellion does is they take something good, which God created, and distort it. Pornography is a distortion of that which is good. Greed is a distortion of that which is good. To have ambition, to have gold, is good. Solomon says that in the Proverbs. But to distort that is to turn it into greed, self-indulgence. See what I'm saying? That's, that, that's the master plan of the chief rebel. Take that which is good and pervert and prostitute and distort it. And that's what happens. And every generation starts it again in a fresh new way. And the only way this is undone 
is for a person to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and become a new creature in Christ and start to see things the way God sees things. And the dysfunction, if I, if I were Satan, part of my master plan would be to attack marriage and the family. I, I see that happening a lot, don't you? Taking that which is good and conducive to life and order and creating chaos and dysfunction. That's exactly what he's doing. All right, now I wanted to set that up in this way, and I spent about 15 minutes doing it, because if you don't understand that, you, you don't have, I don't, I don't believe you will, the strong sense of what Jude is really trying to communicate in a few verses. So let, let me stop, and I'm going to sip coffee for a second, just let you ask any questions or you're either with me or I've thrown so much at you, we're totally confused, you have no idea what I've been talking about, and I need to make sure that you are with me. So let's, uh, Fred. In looking over some of the material, that, um, the letter of June is, comes maybe a year or two after his martyrdom of Peter. Or very close to it, you know. Additional fuel for his emphasis and his zeal in presenting this message. Yeah, I think so because the uh, the early church had to be reminded over and over and over again. It might look like it's getting worse, but it really isn't getting worse when you see it in the larger context of what God is doing. Martyrdom is not... The martyrdom of a church leader can be used by God to accomplish greater things. And the early church, an early leader by the name of Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of the church. Very famous statement that he made. And he lived in the mid-100s. And what he meant by that is every time Rome creates more martyrs, the church grows. And so, I mean, it's, it's just this constant reference to what, remember what God is doing. Remember God's values. God is a God of order, and God is a God that wants to produce that which is conducive to life. If I were Satan, I would attack both of those. And that's exactly what he's doing. And so what Jude does now, starting in verse 8, now I read, I'm reading from the ESV translation, yet in like manner, these people, and if you look at verse 10, people, you look at verse 12, these, he just keeps referring to the same group, of te- these false teachers. So here he's talking about their temperament, their character traits, and wa- explaining why they do what they do. Now, okay, number one, in terms of the characteristics, relying on their dreams. I put it this, I don't know if you can read this. They rely on subjective experience as the source of their authority. My King James says filthy dreamers. Filthy dreamers. <laughs> What's wrong with a dream as a source of authority? It's highly subjective. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know exactly all the details of medical explaining. But I do know, I seem to dream, as soon as I fall asleep, I seem to dream because I wake up and I have all these things I'm thinking about. Because I'm I'm the oldest man here, so I do get up twice during the night to go to the bathroom. That's part of getting old. You guys are young. It's coming. You're going to do that. And so, I mean, I just I remember these ridiculous dreams. And then right before I wake up in the morning or the alarm clock goes off, I, I'm thinking about a dream. But is, is, dream, is a dream reality? Is a dream a source of truth? Is a, dr- a dream trustworthy as a, as a guideline, a light on which you're going to organize your life? Sigmund Freud wrote a very famous book on the interpretation of dreams, and he said it was the window into the subjective elements of the human. You really want to know what they're struggling about? Study their dreams. It'll help you to see the nature of their neurosis. 
may or may not be true. I'm not a psychiatrist. But all, all Jude is saying is, now this is, this is the major point. The source of their authority is subjective experience, not the objective word of God. Back to verse 3. Contend for the faith once delivered. That's not their source of authority. What I just quoted a moment ago? Faith once delivered? The contend for the faith once delivered? I'm in verse 8, but I was quoting verse 3. Contend for the faith once delivered. That's what I was. That's, James says that's what you're contend for. Okay. What, when, you are, when you're dealing with false teachers, what's the source of their authority? A subjective experience. A dream or a vision. Now, I'm saying all that, and, and I, I want to now embellish it with a couple of comments. Um, and I hope I don't lose you here. One of the challenges of the evangelical church in the 21st century in North America is many evangelical Christians want an experience that's going to make them feel good. They are not necessarily interested in the hard work of studying God's Word. So my experience is what I want, and that's what guides me. I've told you this before. I, I don't teach much anymore, but I, when I would put my syllabi together, I always had at the top of my syllabi a quote from Charles Simeon, a late 19th century British pastor. He said, justification is by faith, semicolon. Knowledge of the word of God is by works. You have to think about that. I know I'm watching all your brains here as I'm looking at your facial expression. I hope you understand what he's saying. What was his name again? Charles Simeon. S-I-M-E-O-N. Now I'm saying all that because what what Jude is doing here is he's saying it's it's like he would he's asking a rhetorical question. Okay, for false teachers, what's the source of their authority? Subjective experience, dreams, visions, not the word of God. That's what he's saying. So you look at every major, every major cult that began in the United States, and every major world religion is based on a subjective experience or subjective experiences. Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, had a series of visions and dreams in upstate New York in the early 1800s. And enough of people followed what he was saying about those dreams, about the Book of Mormon and this text that he found that was in Reformed hieroglyphics, and the angel gave him a set of special glasses, and once all that was translated, all was taken to heaven, so he can't prove anything he said. And the same thing, I mean, Muhammad and all of his dreams and visions became the basis of, of what is the religion of Islam. Much of what the Siddhartha Buddha in the 6th century BC is based on these dreams and visions that he had in this ecstatic state through meditation. Not the word of God. I studied under a man, and there's a very wise statement, a very wise statement that he made. Don't ever question or deal with or criticize someone's experience. They had that experience. Draw them to the Word of God. Take them to the Word of God. Don't say, you never had that experience. You didn't have that dream. You didn't have that vision. That's, that doesn't fit with the button. No, that, that's probably going to cause them to become very defensive, very belligerent. Instead, start to get them into the Word of God. 
because what you want is their authority. And that, of course, is a matter of faith and coming to know Christ and all that. But the source of their authority of God is God's word. Glenn. So, so, question. Um, how do you balance um, dreams with one of the gifts of the Spirit is prophecy? So you talk about Jacob, Jacob's ladder. And that came, that came to an dream. So how do you balance the two of that? Now that's maybe not necessarily authoritative, but how do you balance that? Any okay, you're you're dealing. You you have two things there. You have Jacob's dream, uh, which is a dream and a vision he saw of the ladder and all that. And prof, they're two, in a way they're two separate things. Um, I would, um, I would say this, Glenn, because this is really an, an important uh, marker always. A vision or a dream. may or may not be helpful to you, but it is never helpful if it contradicts the Word of God. The test of anything that happens to you is always not did I experience it, did I have that dream, did I have whatever you're talking about. The question is always does that fit the Word of God? Does it fit the faith once delivered. I'm using the language of Jude in verse 3 uh, of this epistle. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't match with the word of God, then don't trust it. You may have had too much red hot sauce on your pizza last night. And that's why, you know, I'm being very ridiculously funny there. But let, let me let me use an illustration, if I if I might, if you just let me use this as an illustration of why I think we have to be so careful, because I actually think that the gift of prophecy has to be understood in the New Testament context with the completion of the Word of God, the completion of the canon, but it is declaring prophecy is really declaring previously revealed truth. It's not giving new truth. In other words, Glenn, if you tell me, I had a dream last night, Jim, that's saying, Jim, that you're supposed to tell me, Jim, I want you to do this, this, and this. So my response to you would be, so Glenn, what you're saying to me is your dream has equal authority with the Word of God in directing my life and what I should do. Is that really what you want to say? You follow me? When Peggy and I, this goes way back, we, uh, we were still in Pennsylvania. I was just finishing up my first master's degree, and we had been trying to have children. We would later discover that we're infertile. We can't have our own kids, so that's why we adopted our kids. But anyway, there was a lady in our church who said, <clears throat> she came to Peggy. She was a, a gal who was really a lovely girl, pretty good friend of my wife. But she was very much into a lot of the experiential, and I've got a word of God for you. I have a word of prophecy. I have a word of knowledge for you. I don't know if you ever heard those phrases. And she said, last night, God told me something for you. Can we have coffee tomorrow? I want to share it with you. Her, her language was the language of what was then. It was a charismatic movement and all that. doesn't matter, but that's where she was coming from. And so Peggy and I talked about that. Should we go and hear what this dear friend, I have a word from God for you. Okay, you hear language like that. It sounds spiritual. It sounds good and nurturing. But what she's really saying is, what I want to tell you has equal authority with the word of God in telling you what you should do. We chose not to meet with her. Probably offended her. As a matter of fact, I know we offended her. But now, I hope, I, I'm not trying to be mean-spirited here. I'm trying to do what Jude is doing here. These false teachers do not have as the source of their authority the word of God. The faith once delivered, verse 3. Their source of authority is subjective experience. Follow me? No. Question. 
how is that different from Moses' subjective experience at the mountain? And I mean, nobody saw that. He came in and said, I did this, and I went up and did this. So how is that different? Well, there are two things I think are important. Number one is the word, the written verbal word of God has not yet been delivered. Moses will be the one who will write it all down, the author of the first five books. And so before the canon is completed, God does speak often to single individuals and communicates them. Even of Moses, it says he spoke to him as a friend. Like a friend speaks face-to-face with another friend. That's how God's relationship with Moses was. Same thing with Abraham in Genesis 12. And so, I mean, part of, part of that is understanding what in theology we call progressive revelation. That understanding what God is doing throughout history. But once his word is completed, that is his verbal revelation, what you and I call the 66 books of the Bible, is completed, the faith once delivered, you see less and less of that in the early church and certainly in, in, in the latter parts of the New Testament and, and throughout the early year, early decades and even early centuries of the church. So it has to fit with the main message of God from creation Th- that's right. till, and till Jesus. And that's, it that's, has to fit with that. It, you cannot it, come up right. with a revelation different from this or anything like that. For, for you and me today in 2017, it's an important question to, to, to grapple with. Is, is, God, is God continuing to give revelation? Yes. New revelation. Yes. Adding to his word. Through us. Through our life experience. Yeah, but not, well, well, I'm just asking that very generally. Is God continuing to give new revelation? Is there a 60... Well, uh, is there a 67th book being written? A 68th book being written? I'm, I'm, I'm being a little silly there, but in other words, when Jude says the faith once delivered, that's a very important biblical concept. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the book, an angel says to John, cursed, the Greek word is anathema, cursed be anyone who adds to this book. And so it's it's the source of your authority. Jude says it's to be the word of God, not experience. Because you and I have the problem of sin and the mind of the sinner is affected. When you come to Jesus, you begin to develop, in the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.16, the mind of Christ. It takes the rest of your life to develop that. Now, we're getting into heavy stuff, but that's why this book is, it's a little book. It's only one chapter, but it is loaded with very important teaching and very important things for us to think about that are very, very relevant to 2017. Uh, Ron? Jude is saying, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, which is requesting to you it's a request to you and, a, and kind of a warning to contend, which we thought was to fight right. or argue for, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So right. he's, he's asking them to argue. If it doesn't line up with the word, don't do it. It's That's wrong. right. That's right. That's and right. And if you don't know the word, which, which I, I didn't. But you're learning. I mean, you're, you're, you're learning that. Yeah. So everything has to line up with the word. That's right. I always tell my students, the first question you should always ask, has God spoken about this? Has God spoken to this? Which means what? i got to go to the word what one of my dear business friends years ago called the manufacturer's handbook. I've told you that. I have to go to what God said. 
Not what Sigmund Freud said, but what God has said, or anybody else. Fred. I think it's important to understand that the for all implies all time as opposed to all people. That's right. It's a, it's a, it's a temporal reference, not a human reference, right? And even, you know, I, I don't know your friend or anything about him, but even your friend saying, God told me, what does he mean by that? I had an impression. I had a desire. I saw it on somebody else's arm, and I thought, you know, I would really. That's a good testimony. People will ask why I do it. it, it I don't know how he thought through it. And then, then take all that and say, God told me to do this. Well, it's certainly it's not a sin to do that. It's not evil to do that. 
And if, you know, he can use it as a means to share his faith, praise the Lord. But I doubt very much, and I, I don't know this man at all, but I doubt very much that God said to him verbally, Joe, tomorrow I want you to go to this tattoo house and get a cross tattoo on your arm. And this is how big I want it to be. I'm, I'm making humor and jokes about it. I don't mean to do that. I don't, certainly don't want to be glib toward what happened in this man's life. But I don't think he really means that's what happened to him. Impressions are impressions. Period. And impressions that don't violate the moral will of God, go with it if you want to. But then don't tell me God told me to wear a miniskirt to church last week. That's me, you know, trans... Well, anyway. <laughs> right. That was a ridiculous example. I should not have... Back to the, to the words of Jude, when you order any of us are faced that kind of situation, aren't we exhorted to contend? Well, and, and again, yes. But again, I mean, there's, there's the balancing of speak the truth in love, Paul says in Ephesians 4. So, yeah, I mean, it's how you go about doing that. And it, because I think most of the time when people say that, they, they have a good intent but it's always helpful for them to think, when I say that, am I saying this is equivalent to the gospel according to John in authority? Yeah, good teachable moment. All right, we have spent 45 minutes on one phrase. Well, no, I did a lot of introduction. The second characteristic is they defile the flesh. Now, I want to go back. Again, I want to go back to understanding God's intent in creating and how I talked about Augustine's definition of evil, a distortion of that which is good. So defilement, defilement of something means you're taking something that's good, created by God, denominated and characterized by God as good, and distorting and perverting it. So when he says, that is Jude, says... They are, defi- they are defiling the flesh, and I put that in quotes because it's sharks. That can mean a lot. It's a figurative word. It can mean a lot. It can mean defiling the body. It can mean defiling the body by using my genitals as an instrument for sexual perversion. Or it can be I'm defiling my body by allowing it to get into the control of alcohol where I'm no longer in control. You see what I'm saying? Defiling the flesh is a very broad statement. But what it's saying is these false teachers in their personal life and in their teaching are defiling that which God has said is good. By instead of that which produces order, they're interested in chaos, and instead of that which is conducive to life, they're interested in the opposite. So they're defiling that which God says is good. Following? And it's broad. Sharks can mean a lot. It can mean a lot of death. So Jude is using a very broad term. It can mean sexual defilement, but it doesn't only mean that. It can mean defiling the body by using you know, in the way we would talk about drugs, alcohol, I mean, all of those things. You're defiling that which God says is good. And you see, I, I want to take you, that's why understanding the early chapters of Genesis are so important. When you understand what God has done, and you understand how sin and rebellion is out to undo all of that, you really understand Satan's strategy individually and personally, as well as globally. <laughs> and I mean, to me, you know, when I came to, an, after studying Genesis years ago, when I came to really understand 20 years ago why Genesis is so important and the rest of the Bible made sense. The rest of everything else makes sense. And then you also understand why God is doing what he's doing. God is undoing what Satan did through the shed blood and, resur- uh, and, and death of his son and the resurrection 
and the second coming. Because as you look, the new heaven and the new earth, which is what Isaiah 65, 66, Revelation 21, 22, is taking us back to God's original plan. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth, but that's the point. So when, when Jude says they defile the flesh, it's a piercing, piercing characterization of them. They're taking that which is good because God created it and defiling it. Instead of the body being an instrument of righteousness, it's now an instrument of evil. Instead of sexual intimacy being that which is beautiful in the context of marriage, you defile it, distort it, and prostitute it. On and on and on. And Jim, um, just on a personal note, uh, I've said this before, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Mm -hmm. And uh, never looked at it in the way that if I got so inebriated that I didn't have control and did something against God's word, uh, you know, the impact of what that was like. Uh, so glad that, uh, you know, this year will be like 45 years since I wow. got drunk. You know? Wow, praise the Lord. But, My uh, goodness. I got to tell you, you know, there was many times where I was completely out of control. Mm -hmm. I mean, just really out of control. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if that would have happened had I studied the word before. But uh, that's, a, that's a big one. Yes. Something else is taking over your mind. That's right. And you have no control. I mean, mm -hmm. you lose all your inhibitions and, mm -hmm. and do things that you would never think of doing mm. if you were close. So right, right. And that's, uh, you know, your testimony, I mentioned this to you before, you are a testimony of, of, of God's grace. You're a trophy of God's grace. He took you from where you were to where you are now. And the only explanation of that is the grace of God. Yes. You're a trophy. Amen. And you really are. Thirdly, another very broad stroke statement, reject authority. Now, this this. This is really important and only understood if you go back to this. God, when God says it's good, it's that which just God is not interested in chaos. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians, God is not the author of confusion. So anything that produces chaos and anything that produces confusion, you and I need to step back and say, okay, what's going on here? Because that is not what God is interested in. Now listen, this is a very, very, very important sentence. If God is a God of order, not chaos, that means authority is really important to God. So, the Bible... Can I use the third one, Joel? Well, I, I you know, first national... I don't want to move all the papers here, but... Um, Let's, let's look at it this way. One of the major premises, uh, major teaching of the Word of God from the beginning all the way through Revelation is the importance of submitting to authority. Let's get started. Give me some examples. Pay your taxes. All right, so let's do it this way. Submit to the state. Right? Jesus says that when he's asked the question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar, rent to God what is God's. Yeah, and I believe it's tithe that's in there too. Yeah, right. And, and that's, that, that's a real interesting <laughs> statement of Jesus to really study sometimes. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. What belongs to God? Everything. Everything. It's not like a compartment of this belongs to Caesar and this belongs to God. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying God owns everything. And a part of his dominion authority is governmental authority. And you pay taxes. 
Because the state is to serve you, regardless of who it is. They provide order, they provide stability, they defy defense. That's what Paul's argument is in Romans chapter 13. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? When he's writing that book, Nero is the Caesar. Yes. And he makes the argument while you do that. So the authority of the state is is a teaching in the scriptures as well. You submit to the authority of the state until it's a sin to submit to the authority of the state. The state orders you to do something that's sinful, then, you know, they, the early church leaders in Jerusalem said, don't preach Jesus. Remember what they said? Um, we have to preach Jesus. And we're not going to obey what you're saying. So if you want to arrest us and put us in jail, okay, but we're going to keep preaching Jesus. And what happens to Peter and John? They get thrown into jail. I'm saying all that. I'm starting to preach here. I'm getting animated. Should we number one and submit to God? Well, yeah. I just I put this because he said it. <laughs> this isn't. This isn't. Well, all, it's just, I mean, this isn't a priority. This is just a list. So Mark has said to God. That's right. Submit to God. What else do we submit to? Authority. Well, that's what. What statutory? What are the types of authority? Law. Okay. Well. That would be law and all. I mean, all the things that come from the state. I heard somebody. Parents. Parents. All right. Submit to your parents. Wife, husband. Parents. Okay. You have the wife-husband relationship. You have. I want to hurry up here because we're running out of time. Uh, Hebrews chapter thirteen says you submit to the leaders of your church. And then in Ephesians chapter five verse twenty-two, you submit to one another. So, I mean, just look at that. What can you conclude? Submission to authority is really important to God. Why? Because it produces order. Not chaos. You see, that's why the disease called adolescence is so (laughs) difficult for us. Because the disease called adolescence challenges all these I mean, teens do not want to submit to the authority of parents. Our daughter, Joanna, Jonathan, our son, he's six years older than Joanna, he was compliant, he loved to, he seemed to like obeying mom and dad. Joanna, she could care less. She was, when Dobson wrote the Strong-Willed Child book, he followed Joanna around, took notes. (laughs) But Joanna, every time, no matter what age she was, it's time for her to go out with the kids, with her friends from school. Dad, what time? I'll be home at 11, honey. Uh, how about 12, Dad? No, 11. 11, 15, 11. That's Joanna. Every day of her life, she pushes the envelope. Now, when she came to know Jesus, I was so thankful for that because if, if she did not come to know the Lord, she was going to end up in jail. There was no doubt about it. And then when I formed her wedding and handed her to Greg, I said, Greg, she's now your challenge. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm making fun of something that's really, we've joked a lot about that. But just look at that list. The nature of humanity is to challenge all that, isn't it? I don't want to live under God's authority. I don't care what his moral law says. I'm an autonomous individual. I can do what I want. I don't want to obey the state. I don't respect the state. I mean, no matter what the politics of the situation, that's the way people are. Because, and this is what he's saying, false teachers reject authority. They they reject authority the authority structure of God's world. This isn't to make our life miserable. God is saying, as one of my friends said, God paints the lines on the tennis court. And you can play outside the lines, but you will live with the consequences of playing outside the lines. So if you go back to what we said earlier, go back to what we said earlier, God creates things and says they are good because it produces order. Immediately, when Satan, the chief rebel, challenges God, this is what he's challenging. I'm interested in chaos, not God. Anything that's chaotic and confusing 
is something that say, okay, we got to figure out why is this happening because that's not pleasing to the Lord. And that's why, you know, to help our kids get through adolescence. And, you know, they usually survive it. Sometimes parents don't. But if you just get them through that. You know, I had a friend, our son went through one of those phases when his hair was real long and he grew a beard. And on. You know, it's one time, <laughs> he was up at this time, he was up, he finished at Grace, he went up to the University of Michigan in Arbor. And that's just what, that's how Jonathan looked. And we're, we're going out in Ann Arbor there for pizza with him. And two people walking down the street, they, Twice they look back at Jonathan, you know, oh my goodness, this is our son, you know. But a good friend of mine said, Jim, just love him, just support him, he'll grow out of it. And he did. You know, it was about four months. And another time you know, he was shaving, his hair was cut, and he was working in a restaurant. It was really good. <laughs> I almost disowned him. No, I'm just kidding. What was the uh, we're not this. No, I mean on your la- on the first list that you made this morning. Okay. Uh, we're not there yet. We're about to get there. Okay. Part of now this is uh, we're not going to get this done, but we'll get it started. Part of this rejection of authority, but taking everything else that we've looked at, blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, because of what Jude says in the next verse. We understand this to mean, what is the word, by the way, what does the word blaspheme mean? What's another word for blaspheme? Disrespect. Say it again? Disrespect. Disrespect, even stronger. Ridicule. Slander, right? I mean, blaspheme, slander is a word of disrespect, but also a rejection of authority. Because you're blaspheming, if you blaspheme God, what are you doing? You're rejecting and, and slandering the chief authority in your life, your creator and your redeemer. But Jude is saying that this, this, must, this must be unique to the teaching of these false teachers. They not only reject authority, they slander the entire spiritual world. They reject and slander and blaspheme the entire spiritual world. And who are the chief agents of the spiritual world? Angels. Now, again, and I I might get you confused here, and I don't want to do that. This fourth item, although it relates to the third item, must have been a unique aspect of the false teaching. Their rejection and ridiculing of authority included the spiritual world. Angels. Good angels, righteous angels, evil, rebellious angels. Reject the whole thing. Then what Jude does in verse 9 is strange when we first read it. It's something like this. But how does God want us to look at the spiritual world? What's God's perspective on the spiritual world? And so he brings up in in verse 9 and and, uh, the entire, it's kind of a long verse. He's summarizing a book called The Assumption of Moses. It's an apocryphal book. Why does he do that? I don't know exactly. But he's using it to illustrate something. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now what's going on here? The Assumption of Moses is an apocryphal book. This is not in the book of Exodus or Numbers. It may actually be historically accurate. Now, let's review a couple of things to make sure you you remember this. Did Moses die? Okay, yes. I mean, that's the easy question to answer. Yes, he died. 
Did the children of Israel bury his body? No, they did not. The Bible says in, in, in uh, the end of, of Exodus and in the end of Numbers and, and even in the beginning of Joshua, it refers to it. The Lord buried Joseph's. Uh, uh, the Lord buried Moses' body. Now, you with me so far? That's what the Bible says. Moses died, but the children of Israel didn't bury Moses. God buried Moses. Generally, it's thought because. God really did not want the burial place of Moses to be a place that would almost become like a worship center. So God took care of it. But this is what's going on. In the assumption of Moses, Moses dies and Satan comes to Moses, uh, comes to the archangel Michael. His body belongs to me. It's just Satan speaking. His body's mine. He's a sinner. He's in rebellion against God. He's a murderer. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He did not obey God in Numbers 20. He's mine. What did Archangel Michael do? Did he contend with Satan? Did he fight with Satan? He said no. He didn't slander Satan. The Lord will take care of you. Yahweh will take care of you, Satan. Now, what I just summarized, does that make sense? Because that's what Jude is saying. Even the archangel Michael, archangel, he's the only one in the Bible called an archangel, the only angel called an archangel. Did he show respect for the authority even of Satan? Yes. Such that he didn't slander Satan, he said, the Lord will take care of you. What I'm saying, and this is what Jesus Jude's main point, it is the authority of God and sometimes the singular authority of God that we must appeal to when we're dealing with the spiritual forces of evil. Even the archangel Michael did that. So let's make that, uh, uh, it's 10 of 1. Um, hurry, because I really have got to quit. I don't think Angel, and, and with all due respect, I don't think Angel uh, Michael was submitting to Satan, he was submitting no. to God. Yes, that's right. Right? He that's right. Because you said that. So. Yeah, and, and I mean, he's, and he's not blaspheming or slandering uh, Satan, he said, he said that, that, that's the applicational point. Don't you do battle with Satan. Let God deal with it. Look at the Archangel Michael. Now, I'm not done with this. I, I'm sorry, uh, but tomorrow what I want to do is I want to pick up with this fourth, uh, I don't mean tomorrow, I mean next Wednesday. I, I want to pick up with this fourth point. I'm not done with it, uh, but so for that, just forget it till next week. But you got the first three. God says what I've created is good because it produces order and it's conducive to life. False teachers, i.e. the agents of satanic rebellion, are interested in undoing both of those. They reject authority. They defile that which God has said is good. And the basis of authority is not God's words, it's subjective experience. Those three characteristics go on today. In false teaching, false religion, anything that's opposed to God. All right, this was heavy stuff today. I hope I didn't lose you. I hope you're with me. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us verbally in a book called the Bible. It is the word of truth. It is the word that contains the faith once delivered for all. It is, it is the source of our authority, the basis of our confidence, the content of our faith. Um, Experience is a reality. We experience lots of things.
but our emotions and often what we eat or whether we're tired, some of that can be distorting the experience that we have. Our authority is always the Word of God. That's what Jude is trying to communicate. Because anything outside of the Word of God, any other source of authority that is in controversy and conflict with the Word of God is going to create chaos and disorder and the disrespect for life. There are two core values of yours, and everything from Satan and everything from these false teachers was undermining those values that are so central to understanding who you are. So, Lord, I pray for these men. We dealt with some heavy stuff today in our class. I pray that this was nonetheless a blessing to them. Help them in their different lives and responsibilities, all that they're dealing with. Give them wisdom, discernment, and may they begin all that is involved in their lives. Begin each day continually, progressively, to be trusting in your word. And I ask you to help them to do that. May we represent you well in all we do and say throughout the rest of this day in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week.